the work that we do from innovation and STEM education mm -hmm. through to mental health, through to homelessness or pensioner loneliness. Addiction. All sorts. Mm -hmm. you know, sport has an amazing ability to bring people in and bring people in who've had histories and experience of this and share and but use sport again as that kind of positive way to bring people together. It, it's so complex what football clubs do and other sports teams but we just don't tell people enough about it and mm -hmm. the reality is we you know we could have the cure for illness and all kinds of stuff but if Chelsea end up signing Ronaldo tomorrow naturally for the business that becomes headline news a conviction in the power of sport to engage impact and inspire communities a relentless curiosity to explore new ways to apply innovative thinking to build educational outreach for one of the world's largest football clubs and brands is this week's guest Head of Education and Innovation at Chelsea Foundation, Matt Mead. Growing up in the south of England, Matt's upbringing prepared him and guided him into a life where coaching, education, technology and innovation collide. In the first 25 minutes, we explore Matt's upbringing, his education and his story before joining Chelsea. From 25 minutes onwards, we dive deep into his journey of education and innovation at Chelsea. How Matt has used the Chelsea brand, the appeal of football create educational outreach and innovative STEM programs in the community. We also explore Matt's positive impact beyond the UK with his programs in the US, the partnerships and his vision for the future of education. I hope you enjoy this authentic, honest, inspiring exploration of education and innovation with Matt Mead. Well, thanks very much for being on the Impossible Network podcast, Matt. Uh, it's great to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be in this great location at Stamford Bridge, the bridge. Yeah, home of Chelsea Football Club. Yeah, uh, it's, and we'll, we'll put images on uh, in the show notes and probably on Instagram as well, because this is probably the, the most spectacular location we've done an in interview. Oh, wow. Well, happy to have uh, facilitated so, yeah. it. So, so let's kick off. So, Matt, before we explore, uh, explore your life in football education and innovation, I'd really like to sort of dive in and understand more about your childhood, where you grew up, how your parental support, guidance and direction affected or helped you on the journey and to where you are today, um, the impact that your parents had on your self-belief. So maybe let's just start with where you grew up. Okay, well this is, might seem strange to kick off, but I was born about two miles from Stamford Bridge. So uh, born in Hammersmith. <clears throat> My family all originated really from sort of the southwest London area, so Fulham, Hammersmith area. So I was born in a hospital that no longer exists called Queen Charlotte's, oh, yeah. as well as my brother and sister. In the very early 80s, and my parents moved us to Wimbledon when we were a small child. So basically, from sort of naught to 14, I grew up in Wimbledon. Um, Not as a Wimbledon fan, surely. No, a Vinnie Jones fan. Well, I always admired them because <laughs> yeah. of the crazy gang, and I was there in '88 in the uh, Broadway watching them bring the trophy and the, kind of the scenes there. But deep down, everyone was a Chelsea fan. Uh, so it was nice to have that kind of period in my life. Growing up in London, it was it was an important part of my life. Um, and I think, you know, I grew up with two parents, mum and dad. Mum uh, looked after the kids and dad went out to work. It was, it was an interesting period because, you know, we're going to talk about sort of life and changes and moments that happen. But um, I think, you know, we're moving from London to Sussex was definitely a huge part of my life at kind of 13, nearly 14 years old, mm. to sort of come away from your friends and what you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was hugely influential in where I am today. So Londoner till 14, then moved mm. down to the coast. What led to the move at 14? Um, a year or two before, my parents decided they needed to have a little bit of a break. Um, my dad headed out down to Sussex and had this lovely place in a place called Henfield in West Sussex, and we stayed in London. And then, thankfully, my parents decided to give it another shot, get back together, um, but on the premise that we left London and moved to Sussex for a fresh start, which 
I say 13 years old was tough. The, the oldest of three to leave everything you'd known and move down to, you know, fields and farms. And it just wasn't what I was used to. But again, when you look back, it made a huge amount of sense. And it was the, uh, it was the best thing for us. Mm-hmm. So taking outside your comfort zone in changing environment, changing friends, changing school, mm-hmm. which probably prepared you. Hugely. I mean, before we moved, you know, when parents separated for a period, being the oldest, I naturally kind of took the mantle as sort of father figure at home and had to mm-hmm. be emotionally aware of what was happening to help my brother and my sister, but also aware of my parents' feelings and, you know, if we did things separately, not to talk about it, to worrying that someone else would feel upset. So I think emotional intelligence in my career has played a big part to where it started having to adapt early mm. at sort of 12, 11, 12 and sort of lead the family was a good experience and through that I think it's kind of brought me where I am today. And what about your brothers and sisters? You said you've got... Yeah, brother, younger three. brother and then a younger sister. So how do you think that change from a very stable first 14, 13 years in, in, in South London and then moving to, to Sussex had an impact on your self-belief or your attitude to change and uncertainty and how you deal with it? it was difficult you imagine being 13 years old year nine 14 that that new child in a new school in that year nine you're starting to go into those really kind of critical years of secondary school and being the new guy who spoke differently looked differently um it was it was difficult and you kind of you, you jump around friendship groups because you don't know where you fit but one thing that always kept me on the sort of straight and narrow throughout my whole career in education have been sports so naturally i align myself with the sporty kids and became you know one of the popular football kids cricket captain football captain that kind of stuff but it was tough it was tough and changed difficult you know i'd known a certain way of life for all my existence and then to move was difficult but i had bigger things to worry about a younger brother and sister also so you had to kind of care for them make sure they understood what we're going through and it was the right thing for us so that bedrock that sport played in your life through that period of change do you think that affected the direction that you went on with your career? I think I had no idea when I was Mm. playing sport where it would take me. I had no idea. I always loved it. I just loved competing. I loved the camaraderie with your teammates, the friendship, the achievement of success, the challenges, but just being part of that group, you know, watching it, playing it, it just meant everything to me as a kid. Mm. I was playing football, I was playing cricket, I was playing basketball, rugby. I went on to play American sports when I went to college. It just was always something I loved, but I didn't realize that say 15 through to 21, 22 actually could turn into a life where I get to travel the world for one of the mm. biggest teams in the world. So it's been a, it's been a good journey. But at that time when you moved, were you, would you say if you'd stayed in London, sport would have continued to play such an important part of your life? Or do you think it was the, the, the changing environment that led you to take find safety, security and camaraderie with friends and, and establish your identity in a new environment? I think it would have been Different if I stayed in London. London was much more urban. It was more playing with your friends in the park, playing on the streets, non-official sports teams and leagues, moving to Sussex. You know, I moved to a little village in West Sussex. You know, there wasn't much to do in that village apart from the local cricket club, the local football club. So naturally, and also the, the football club pitch was across the way from my house, so it was easy. But that was where the community started. Mm. You know, And this club's one of the oldest clubs in the world. Um, go back to the 1600s. It's got a lot of history there, but it was the epicentre of sport in the village. So it naturally became a place where I met friends played up through the ranks, men's team. Whereas in London, you know, you can get on a bus, you can be on the other side of town in 25 minutes, half an hour. Yeah. You, you didn't have that where we lived. You were in that community and you stayed there. So I think if I'd left, if I hadn't left, sorry, I think I'd have been playing on the streets still, which was good because I think, you know, you learned a lot playing football and cricket on the streets. But I think going into more organised sports definitely uh, was, was a better move. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about school? What was it like for the young Matt? Quite enjoyed school. Yeah. 
wasn't the best behaved, I have to be honest. <laughs> None of us are. Well, <laughs> don't get me talking about my behaviour at school. <laughs> and that's the thing. I think back to my position now as head of education and innovation for arguably one of the world's biggest football teams. And education is, is a huge part of my life, but it really just wasn't a school. I always felt I knew what to say if I was in trouble. I always felt a bit smarter than my friends because they would just kick off and get in trouble. And I always sort of know to apologise and I'll put it right. And I always felt that was kind of my secret weapon because I'd look at my friends and say, what are you doing? Just yeah. don't react. Just well, I suppose you brought with you a bit more of sort of London, South London streetwise attitude to a small village. Probably. That's, that probably did help, yeah. It's just... But I enjoyed it, you know, I was very into, my dad worked in, con, in sort of construction industry, so architecture and art was a big part of, of his <clears throat> his role, and I enjoyed drawing, I enjoyed kind of um, probably where my tech interest started, from designing and drawing, and art was something I was quite passionate about, but then I had a decision at kind of sixth form, football, uh, sport or art, and sport always won, but uh, school was good, didn't work and hard, as hard as I should have, didn't apply myself, just wanted to play sport and have fun, um, but that's why I'm trying to put it right now. Did you ever have aspirations to be a professional player, either cricket or football? Uh, not football, really. It no. didn't really bother me at the time. I enjoyed playing. I was okay, not a bad little player, but it didn't really ever come into my mind. Cricket was a bit different. The reason I went to Oxford Brooks was part of a, a, an academy. They had a university centre of cricket and excellence. There were six universities around the country that had these centres of excellence. And I was going to go to uh, Guildford and study media technology because I had an interest in tech and I think I like TV. So I thought, well, why not bring them together? But then this opportunity came to a trial out to get into the Oxford Centre of Excellence. And I went through Oxford Brooks, got into the university and I made it into the squad for two seasons. So mm. that was a pathway. But again, similar things happened. Didn't take it as serious as I should and do look back on it with some regret. What was the pivotal sort of moment that when you, ha you said you, you were also interested in art, you liked technology? Was it that opportunity to go to Brooks to play cricket or had you consciously gone, no, I'm not going down the artistic route? It's when I did my GCSEs. I really had a really great art teacher. Um, and in the, the final year, the year 11, I just spent a lot of time working with him and, 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 and honing my skills, I guess. I can't exactly remember, but he had some kind of breakdown. Hopefully it wasn't my fault. Um, <laughs> and ended up leaving the school. And who knows back in those days what the reasons were. But he didn't return and, and basically the school just fed in supply teachers that last year and the level of mm. art teaching and just interest just started to disappear yeah i was it wasn't the same so sport was always there so it just it was an easy decision but yeah i would have i would like to pursue it but then i went to you know six one college in brighton which is extremely creative and liberal and lots of art there so i sort of knew people in that kind of area what i'd keep in touch with but once i went to college it was just sport all the way mm. Did you, at that stage, did you have any inkling that you were going to be pursuing a career in sport and education and the role that sport could play in communities? No idea. No. The only, the only, I guess, early indication was I enjoyed coaching. I liked helping people. And I think that comes back to being maybe the oldest of mm. three. I always enjoyed helping young people and coaching football was a, was a natural way to do that. That was something I was enjoying. I did my coaching badge at college. So naturally I would start to help at soccer camps and when I went to university, I started spending quite a few summers over in the, in the States coaching in, in the US, which probably didn't help my cricket, considering that was when the cricket was played, and I'd want to leave after a month and go to the US. And, and you weren't tempted to get into baseball. <laughs> I played baseball at, um, at university for Oxford, Oxford Kings. I actually won Rookie of the Year in 2003, which my dad pointed out I was the only rookie. So they had no <laughs> other choice. So good to get that support. What was, it, what was the connection to the US? I think living in London in the 90s, you know, the NFL was on Channel 4, yeah. basketball was on Channel 4. I used to watch that all the time, and my parents never understood, because none of my parents had ever been to the US. They never had a history of the US. It's just something about America just stood out to me. 
to watching the sports, basketball, uh, hoop in the back garden. It, I was always interested. So I think when I went to university, and we can talk about the sort of serendipity mm. moment, that's when it all started, the US, when I was at university. And someone came back into my life, which opened up a door to the US, which set me on a pathway of, of years of traveling and, and working with the US now. Just quickly give me an overview of that, that linear sort of journey through education. Because you mentioned Oxford Brooks, you went to University of Brighton, and then there was periods in the US. So so the order there, so yes, went to, to Sixth Form College in, in Brighton Hoe for two years, um, got the opportunity to go to Oxford Brooks and be part of this cricket scholarship. Uh, did that for two seasons, uh, annoyingly moved across the road from the training ground in the third season and was dropped. I think because, again, I didn't take it too seriously and spent my summers in the in the US rather than in the cricket field. And also that was a tough period because outside of cricket, none of my friendship group played and they were there doing university the right way, mm -hmm. which is going out, having fun, studying in between. And I found that very easy to go through that bit, go to the pub, have some fun, meet some friends. And then obviously wake up at 6 a.m. to train like a professional was not easy at 18 years old. Uh, with lots of my other players had been professionals or at County and I had never. I was kind of a, a happy Gilmore, joined late and played with a very urban style. But that finished. And then during university, actually, um, I had a phone call from a, a good friend of mine I grew up with in London. And he said, he said, someone's come back, I'd like to see you. And it was just a very strange moment, but I straight away knew who he was talking about. It was an old friend of mine. We were kind of, you know childhood sweethearts i guess you know first girlfriend or whatever 10 11 years old but she had moved to the u.s you know at 10 or 11 that was quite a sad moment because she was a good friend of mine I hadn't spoken to her for years you know the email wasn't around no text no cell phones um but as soon as my friend called me and said she's come back because her mum's had a heart attack she wants to see a doctor in london but she's asked to see you when i got to see her it was great to see her again after all these years but her mum ran a montessori school in fort uh -huh. lauderdale in southern florida and i was doing my degree in education and coaching and I was like, well, maybe that's a good opportunity to go out there and help the school and learn and more about it. what age were you at this point? Uh, 19. Mm. 19. And I thought, well, oh no, sorry, I was doing a sports degree and geography. And I didn't really enjoy the geography bit. So I, said, I wrote to the dean and said, look, this opportunity's come up. Can I just cut this course loose and start again in September? And the dean approved it so I could come back and do a sports and education course. So that summer, from May to September, I moved to South Florida and helped in a Montessori school from swimming lessons to football coaching to DIY, which was awful at, and just spent the summer in the school and learned a that lot about great. kids. Yeah. That was amazing. 19 years old in Southern Florida. It was uh, the first experience really of the US and I didn't know that was going to tee up so many more trips. Because I was going to ask you that, that your education could have taken you in many directions, but it sounds like that this serendipitous encounter was the one that then set you on the path of education and and sport yeah i realized at an early age one i enjoyed working in the u.s i enjoyed using sport as a way to educate these kids and see the enjoyment and montessori is an interesting kind of education um lens in the fact that these kids learn individually and at different ages and different speeds in comparison to now with classes and, and levels um just seeing these kids play through the art of play was interesting and i didn't know kids could do that i didn't go to a montessori school um so it was just a new way to see that education sport it's a really powerful way to get these kids excited about learning. And from there, when I came back and started my degree again with education and coaching, they had a lot more purpose. Mm -hmm. The transition from university to work. So you went to Florida, you, you encountered the Montessori, you came back, completed your degree here mm -hmm. in education and sport. And obviously you could have gone down a sport, more sports science route, but you very much were focused and motivated by education. Yeah, so, yes, correct. So the summer of 2001... Is when I kind of went to the US and started in Florida, came back, completed the three years doing my sports coaching degree. At the end of this, 
to summer of 2003, there's a, a guy called Andy. I just played cricket with from South Africa, and we're having a beer one Christmas and just catching up. And he told me about he went and did a traditional kind of North American summer camp the summer before. And I was like, this sounds amazing. You know, you get to spend three months in the woods, you help with the kids, like every sort of American summer movie. A classic ever camp seen. America. Yeah. yeah. So I was like, right, I need to be part of this. Um, so Andy got in touch with the organisers. They were in London recruiting, took him to Oxford. We had to sit down and it was great. They just told me about the story of, of the camp, the origins. I mean, we're talking right in the middle of nowhere. in North, was it? North Carolina. It was in the middle of nowhere. Appalachian Mountains, really rural. And I spent May through to September 2003 out there and, it was a really interesting time about understanding kids and whether I'd be a good dad or not because you are with these children from the moment they arrive for either a one-week stint, a two-week or the big three-week stint from the second you wake up in the same room as them to get them ready, take them to breakfast, having them all day to put them to bed then sleeping in the same room. That was, that was a really hard summer, but a really fun summer. And I got to realize, again, that education and sport, this is, this is there's a pattern here. I'm enjoying this. I'm seeing how kids can develop. What sort of backgrounds were these kids? Were they from... Quite affluent backgrounds, or I think so. I mean, these I don't think these camps are cheap. Yeah. In, in the first instance, but there were some kids. There's some tough kids. There's a couple of kids that really stood out in my memory, which pushed me. And as a, as a 20 sort of two year old, I think at the time, um, and the fact that you know, parent was in jail and had a very difficult life, and this camp was he came over and was was a difficult child. He's a bully a lot of kids there, and I, when we found his especially his parents at the end, it was because he was bullied back in his hometown. This was his way to unleash all that anger and. Again, it just started to get you thinking about the psychology of kids and how they act differently in different groups. And highly recommend anyone who's thinking of spending a summer in America trying to get to know yourself and get to know children. Definitely worth doing. Okay, so you you came back from there, and that was into your final year at university, or then I think I just, just no, I think it was my final year. I came back, finished my final year, uh, and and then at beginning of two thousand and six. And this is actually this is. A nice story. Toward the end of my university days, I started working for a language school in Oxford. So the traditional language school you see in any major town in the UK, groups of foreign students with backpacks on, blocking all the doorways to McDonald's, HMV, generally getting in the way. We were looking after those guys. Uh, and I made a good friend called Dan, American guy, which seems to be a natural connection. We got on really well. We'd go party together. We had a really, really great summer looking after these students. And he was going back to the US in 2005. And he was like, well, I'm going back to the US and I'm going to get a real job now. And I was like, oh, good luck with that. I'm going to just see where the wind takes me at this stage. So I went back home, <laughs> had a job, wasn't particularly enjoying it for this art manufacturing company. But then a job came up with the MLS, coaching soccer in the US. So I was like, great, this sounds fantastic. You know, the, the MLS is still developing as a league. It was their soccer camp program. So I applied for it. So about a week before I was going, flying into Boston, my parents said, where are actually you going to? And I was like, I'm not really sure. I'm out there for nine months. I don't know where I'm going. So I kind of emailed the organizers and said, look, my parents are getting nervous now. I'm leaving my home to another country. He said, oh, our head office is in a place called Mystic in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. And I'd never I been to Connecticut. Mystic, yeah. yeah. So I've, knew, I've been to New York before. I visited there a couple of times. So I found Mystic in this tiny little state called Connecticut. Emailed my friend Dan. So we were on email at that point and said, I'm coming to Connecticut. Where do you live? And he said, Connecticut. And I was like, oh. That's a bit of a touch, one out of the 50 states. <laughs> and I said, I'm coming to a team called Trumbull. Have you ever heard of it? And he kind of just paused. He said, that's where I'm staying right now. That's where no. my parents live. Wow. And I was like, what? Because the MLS was in 48 of the 50 states. Yeah. I could have been sent to Hawaii. I could have gone to LA. I could have gone to anywhere. So then sort of 24, 48 hours later, I rock up, get the plane down to the, the host family, had some dinner with the host family, and the doorbell rings. And they're confused because it doesn't normally happen. And there's an American guy saying, is, is Matt in? And then <laughs> no, I'm like, guys. Matt, and you got a guest. 
oh, I was like, Dan, how you doing? And he's like, right, do you want to go for a beer? I was like, yeah. So we went straight out. Um, and that was the rest of the summer. That's I spent amazing. the summer with him and his family in Connecticut, wonderful people, and got to coach kids. And <clears throat> that was 2006. How did you discover the MLS opportunity? Because the internet, even then, I mean, it was, yeah, okay, it was available. But did you see it posted on a job board or did someone sent you a link? I think it was a jobs board, I think. But I think I saw it online somewhere. You know, we did have the internet because I remember... It must have come up with one of my many internet uh, experiences, but it came across and it was a, it was a good experience. It was you know like hundred English guys out in the East Coast coaching football and having a good time. That must have been quite an experience because the early days, as you say, of the MLS and North American Soccer League was still the probably the predominant sort of league at that time, and MLS hadn't really got traction. Not really, no. It was teaching soccer is the biggest sport in the US up to thirteen. Yeah. So in terms of participation, they all play it. Not particularly good, some of them, but it's something they play and then they make decisions about you know real sports when they get to sort of teenage years. But the MLS was a brand that was still relatively unknown. It you know it was just before what was it yeah just before Beckham. I think Beckham was seven eight uh, two thousand seven eight kind of era. So it's before Beckham really, but people knew it. It just didn't have it. It's much better now, but it didn't have the level of attention it does now. But mm-hmm. um, people knew soccer as a game and knew the English guys, so that probably had more value. So okay, you did that for how long? Nine months. Nine months to the end of 2006. And the plan was to have Christmas at home, <clears throat> spend it with the family, and then go back out again in March and maybe look to settle. Because I'd met a few guys out there that had uh, set up their own programs out there and are still there to this day running their own business and, and living there. And then a birthday party came around, and, and that's how I met my wife. And um, we kind of started seeing each other and dating, I guess, in early 2007. And that was where? That was in Sussex. That was in Sussex, right. And then the plan was to go back, but kind of... Things change, and I stayed in Sussex with my wife, and who's a, a teacher, and we kind of settled down, and here we are now, uh, married eight years. So what was the connection to Brighton? It was just near to where uh, we lived. You know, the, the village we lived in at the time was Henfield. She came from a village called Stenning, which we live in now. It's only 10 miles from Brighton. So Brighton was the big city for us all. You know, it was a, a, an easy bus journey down to the coast, and, you know, Brighton's a great city, you know, to go out and have fun and explore. So that's where you really sort of cut your teeth in terms Football. of and education in this country and working with the community. How did that early experience guide you towards coming to a bigger club like Chelsea? So when I was looking for work, um, whilst I was at college at, at Basvik, was the, the sixth form college in Brighton, my old A-level PE teacher and football coach used to was there, but he had actually moved on to Brighton Hive Albion's community programme called Albion in the Community. So I, I saw that he had changed. I saw it on, on the website. And I dropped him an email and said, Alan, do you remember me? I'm back from the US. I've been coaching. I've got this degree in education. For people that maybe don't have a, a true sense of the influence that football clubs play in the fabric of the community, could you maybe just explain a bit more about the, that, that influence and the power of football in this social fabric of the communities and the potential positive impact it can have on people's lives? Sure. I think when you think of football in the UK, you know, the thing that comes out is history, tradition. It's always been that kind of epicentre of a community. It's a place where people used to come to every every other weekend and spend a couple of hours watching their team. But it means far more to that locally. It has this ability to bring people into something that's central, it's exciting, it's sexy, the stadium, even if it's a big ground to a smaller ground, it's somewhere that people recognise whether you're a fan or not. And you can't underestimate the ability for that brand to want to bring people together to, for any reason. It could be a fans forum, it could be to do education, it could be to discuss health and well-being, it could be to discuss anything. 
but the ability that brand has locally in the connection with its people. So whether you're you know, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company or you're a local bus driver or a cleaner, if you've experienced the emotion of supporting that team through highs and lows, all of a sudden, everything you've ever done, the money you've ever earned goes out the window. All you do is you share that emotion, <clears throat> that moment of passion, glory, that pain. I don't think there's anything in life that can bring that closer to you. I mean, that feeling of winning and losing with a sports team. So when that sports team reaches out and said, we want to help you or we want to bring you in, they've got their hooks in you to a point anyway because you've invested your life. I mean, what other business would you spend all week talking about buying their products if you had a terrible experience, you know? If you bought an Apple product that kept on breaking, was never reliable, never worked, would you keep going back? But football, you the, do. The long-suffering fans and when Saturday comes and, <laughs> and it's only misery for many clubs. Of course, and they know that. And But they know it's going to hurt. They yeah. know we're going to lose possibly because that's traditional or it's where they are in the league. But there's still something that brings them back. You, you know, like I said, you cannot underestimate what it means to a, a, a child or a parent or a grandfather and to see them their faces light up and bringing people to the stadium. Even like today, you know, you don't have to be a football fan to come here and just recognise it's interesting, it's exciting being around the ground. And if you then use the excitement and the passion people have to be here to then discuss certain subjects and look at certain issues, it's amazing what you can come out. So that's a great overview and a perspective. I, just to finish on that point, I, do you think there is a similar... I mean, obviously you've got the big sporting franchises in the US, but is there a compa- would you say there is a comparison in the US? I think one thing, obviously the UK is a lot of history in comparison, mm. even to US sports. You know, we have teams here formed in the 1800s, which I think is remarkable. Um, things are slightly different in the US. I think a sports team still means the world to fans. You know, if you're a local team, like Dallas Cowboys is your local side, and you grow up in a family and a generation that are Cowboys fans, that's like the, you know, that's like the Bible to you. That team, mm. what it says, what it stands for, the athletes that come through that franchise. But I think slightly in the US where it differs is the ability for an owner to pick up a team and move it a thousand miles yeah. to another community, which me being a kind of purist and a romantic about community and the impact is hard to swallow. Imagine if Chelsea said all of a sudden we're going to go play in Newcastle and we're going to move the team and move everything that represents this club in London mm-hmm. to another part of the country where there's not a fan base, there's no real connection, it's purely driven by money. And then what happens to the people left behind? I mean, it's... I don't, that's a bit of US sports I don't quite mm. grasp. But it has happened here, MK Dons. True, and well, yeah, I lived Europe, in Wimbledon. Wimbledon yeah. I remember the days when yeah. it was being discussed. It's been painful. They were talking about moving Wimbledon to Ireland to play in, in Dublin. I guess I wasn't a Dons fan, so it wasn't the end of the world, but it definitely hurt Wimbledon fans when they moved. Yeah, and feel like you're ripping something out of the heart oh, of yeah. the, the community. Something that's been there for decades, if not a century. Okay, so let's segue into your role in education. You went to Brighton, you were connected there, you then had a role um, of education and outreach into the community with Brighton FC? Yeah, so when I, when I went to Brighton, so I came back from the US, my old A-level um, PE teacher and football coach was then the MD of the Albion's sort of foundation charity. It's called Albion in the Community. So I dropped him an email and said, that I'm back from the US, this is my background. He said, fantastic, come in and uh, we'll give you a job. That was easier than I thought. And I just got stuck in at the lowest level. He said, you know, we run programs here where we coach kids football locally in the, in the community. Can you help just do the spreadsheet and make sure it's up to date with names and parents' details? And I was like, look, I saw this as an opportunity to get into professional football. I was prepared to do whatever it took. So I was like, yep, fine, no worries. And for any fans of the Albion, this is the Withdean Stadium. This is yeah, not the American yeah. Express. This is an athletics track where I did athletics as a 16-year-old. Porter cabins for offices, porter cabins for hospitality lounges. There was nothing fancy about this place, but I saw it as a great opportunity. 
But one thing I did have was my old boss had an education background and he was one of the first people in the UK to recognise how a football club can actually access government funding to help unemployed adults get skills to make them more employable and get them back to work. <clears throat> so for, for two or three years before I joined, they'd been helping, the Albion had been helping um, adults get English skills and math skills and get them back to work. So, you know, they were going from either short-term unemployed to long-term unemployed, coming into the Albion, to the home of the stadium, <clears throat> getting qualifications, getting the confidence up, building a network and helping them back towards getting a job. And I thought that was really cool. I had no mm. idea football even did that. And that was the start of a journey, which 12 years on, really, I'm still doing. Mm. Um, I had no idea football had that power to take someone from a, a difficult situation of unemployment and actually move them towards something positive. So how did you then become connected? I think you joined Chelsea uh, Foundation in 2013. Yeah, so I was kind of, if, if you look at all the teams, 92 teams in the UK, uh, in the through the lens of education and outreach they do. Brighton would probably be in the kind of, they'd be battling it out for the title, top two if not, uh, looking to be one of the best in the country. It, it, the programme had evolved from kind of employability skills through to more business and helping people with specific industry skills. And it was really pioneering. And not, not many clubs were doing adult education. Brighton were kind of the real front runners. And that was like my apprenticeship in this industry. I learned a lot about adult education, the importance of working with colleges, government funding and helping people back to work. Chelsea had never done that ever. And Chelsea probably at the time would have been battling out in relegation in education terms, really were, didn't have the greatest programme. Um, it was, you know, it was impactful to a point with primary schools, but an opportunity came up for me to come here and kind of start again, mm -hmm. clear the slate and, and build a programme, which we have done now over the last five and a half years. Do you think um, traditionally this of the outreach was more just as a feeder system to spot young talent and bring them in as players rather than an established all-encompassing social outreach to impact people's um, opportunity and work and education beyond sport? Uh, no, I think, you know, I think we offer soccer schools, you know, and through that we'll see players who are quite good. And the foundation's all about participation, inclusivity, and people being able to access football. That's, you know, on their doorstep that makes a difference, that, you know, helps build positive relationships. Of course, if there are some players who show some talent, there are pathways within the foundation up to development centres and... and advanced centres that we help kids who have got talent because it's not all just about playing and everyone's a winner. You know, we want to make sure some kids who have got talent can actually progress and then we have a very effective system where we take kids through that, through Chichel Academy. But it's about Chelsea giving back. There's no there's no interest in us selling more shirts or or finding the next Eden Hazard. It's about making sure the, the brand is seen positively. So how do you then, what's the relationship between your role here, the local authorities, the schools, and even the and then how do you um, bring in the sponsors to have an impact as well? So locally, I mean, this is the thing. Chelsea is a global brand, and I guess being in Brighton, you know, Brighton was not a global brand. So we had Sussex and Brighton as our as our core area. Part of that mindset has remained here at Chelsea. You know, I, yes, okay, I do travel a lot, which is great, and the brand does travel many many countries. But Chelsea Football Club is is here in Fulham on the Fulham Road, southwest London, and this is the home of the club, and this is where. The, club has always been and hopefully will always remain therefore this immediate community in Hammersmith and Fulham uh, is our community and the schools and the local authority that we work with are a major priority in how we can be seen to give back to these people you know the fans of ours live on the streets around us it, you know, to refer to this kind of square mile here around us this is the real epicenter of Chelsea so we have a role to give back because you know they come here they spend their money they watch the team they support us through highs and lows but for us to be able to go into a school and teach kids around enterprise or stem education or english and maths or help a teacher develop their skills in pe it's really important that it's happening here on our doorstep and these these programs do go wider mm -hmm. but 
Hampstead and Fulham and the local area for us is a real priority and it's our duty to give back. And is there a, a connection with other clubs? Do you, um, is there a unified strategy that the Premier League have embraced and taken on, as you say, Brighton are now in the Premier League um, and maybe if, they, if they'd set that standard, are the Premier League in trying to encourage all the other clubs to adopt similar schemes? Oh, yeah, the Premier League are huge advocates of social change. Um, there's the Premier League, obviously, the, the brand and, and the league we all know. <clears throat> but then there's the Premier League Charitable Trust, Charitable Fund, sorry, PLCF, mm. which donates huge amounts of money back to professional clubs in the UK, both the Premier League and lower divisions. We work with them very closely. Uh, and London's interesting because, again, coming from Brighton, pretty much at the whole of Sussex, there was Crawley Town became professional, but they're 25 miles up the 23 Came to Fulham, we have QPR and Fulham Football Club all within this one borough, all within walking distance. So naturally, there's going to be friction in certain schools where we go, they go. But I've never really bought into that because we're all trying to do the same thing. Yeah. We're all trying to use sport to positively impact lives and give young people and adults an opportunity for a better future. So we come together and in London's probably, what, 14, 15 clubs, you all have the same vision. So it's, there is a unified approach here for professional football. I mean, going back to 2006, I don't really think I heard the term STEM. When did that start to emerge as a, a major area of focus? Probably 2017 for us at, here at Chelsea. Uh -huh. uh, it'd been something I'd always been interested in, say the arts as a youngster and, and design and orthographic projection. I remember doing that and I think probably my influence with my dad being in construction uh, was important and I'd always been a bit of a techie really. I always enjoyed Apple as, as a brand and as a product and been a, you know, a, a a customer theirs for many many years and I actually set up an Apple regional training center at the Amex at Brighton which was right. working with yeah. Apple to help educate kids and teachers around the use of Apple products and education so that was good you know I got very close with Apple then and for me it was just kind of that was a pleasure you know a company I admired the products I used to be able to learn more and get close to those guys was great so kind of from there my interest in technology was was very relevant and you know consume a lot of tech to keep myself up to date came to Chelsea realized we weren't doing that. We kind of built programs. I had, to build the, I had to build the structure first. I had to get the right staff in place, the right programs in place in other areas to, shoot, to show we could do the kind of bread and butter programs first. And then I decided we start to take our first step into the STEM world. Um, and at the time, I was a big user of lynda.com, online learning oh, yes, resource, of course. Uh, now no, LinkedIn, LinkedIn Learn. Yeah. So I kind of, I was using that. And actually through Twitter and through a, a network, I got to meet a fellow LinkedIn user, uh, sorry, a Linda user, but also a Linda author an educator called Ronaldo Lawrence. Uh, he's a good friend of mine who's a teacher at Glynn School in Surrey. And we connected and realized we both had a passion for education. And he was a former basketball player in the 70s for the Clippers, but has been in England for many, many years and was like the British basketball points scorer. Great guy. But he was actually an author on there. So he was teaching how to use Adobe products and teaching others how to use software. And we became good friends. And we just said, look, you know, personalized self-taught learning is difficult the intent is always there to go home and do a course and study and improve and hone your skills but after a long day at the office or the family and you're tired and i'd watch the videos on the train i'd be asleep for five minutes yeah. because of the motion we said these are really critical skills wouldn't it be great if kids could learn these skills but we can't ask a nine-year-old or a 12-year-old to go in their bedroom and expect them to stay on this for an hour and learn it why don't we bring them together and let's do it somewhere interesting why don't we bring them to stanford bridge let's bring a group of kids together let's get some of the content from linda we worked with linkedin at the time bring it to life let's try and get actual authors in the room so rather than watching them on a the screen they could coordinate this in the classroom and they could learn as a as a as a group and actually learn as a team and 
and had the value of learning and off each other and sharing rather than sitting there with the headphones on trying to mm-hmm. digest this. But the thing we'll do is after lunch, we'll take them out and we'll play football. We'll do the kind of learning in the morning of the mind and in the afternoon we'll do the fitness. And is this weekday or is weekend? We were doing this during sort of holidays, uh, oh, half term okay. and Easter. Yeah. So we, we called them the Chelsea Digital Camps and myself and Ronaldo, we ran them here at Stamford Bridge and the kids loved it. And we did some really great stuff with Microsoft products and animation and we had kids creating their heroes and bringing them to life through animation. I just got to realize kids really like this stuff. You know, I think it's a bit of a lazy narrative these days that teenagers are good at technology. They're fine with Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram, but when we work with our kind of 16 to 19 B-Tech kids, the kids who are at this point where they should be fluent, you give them a, a Word document or a PowerPoint document to do their work, they look at it blankly. They really don't get it. It's made me realize that, you know, it's easy to say, oh, these kids are digital natives. They yeah, are in some I things. I totally agree with you. I've seen that myself when working in agencies and running teams and some of the younger people coming in as grads have got no idea how to use the basic tools. No, but you, you, you say, like, run the social media or give us Instagram. I mean, not, again, not all of them. It's lazy to assume. But, again, they're much more comfortable with this. But when it comes to productivity and actually getting mm-hmm. work done with tech, Kind of, I was like, wow, these kids well, really don't have productivity and creativity. It's yeah. the combination of the two. And I think that's, that's amazing. So when you talk about, you've got the grassroots stuff that you're doing with the outreach and the communities. That, just for anyone that's listening doesn't understand what the grassroots level is, what, can, what, is, what does that involve? So from my point of view, education, we go into local primary schools and secondary schools, sort of K through 12 education, and use the brand of Chelsea to help educate, motivate, and inspire kids through improving their literacy, improving their uh, numeracy, improving their knowledge around business and enterprise and STEM education and equality and diversity is a huge part of what we do as part of our Building Bridges campaign here and really make sure that everyone is treated equally and kids know the importance of equality. And it's a big, big program for us here at Chelsea and one that we're very proud of. Um, even linked through to our, our recently award-winning Say No to Anti-Semitism campaign and, and, our, and our commitment to tackle anti-Semitism and showing the kids that it's so important to treat people with respect and, and to acknowledge history and make sure that you know, you're a good human person going forward. Grassroots is in the schools. Let's get them early. Let's make sure they understand that and prepare them for a better life. And that's life. happening. And just in terms of the mechanics of how it works, when is that, when is that engagement happening in schools? Oh, during term time. Term time, during school days. We'll go into schools during the day. We'll have events here at Stamford Bridge. We'll bring them out of the school to inspire them with the stadium, which is always great fun. Yeah. But a bit of both, you know, we make sure we go in and we support teaching. There's PPA, so when teachers have that time to do the other bits, we can come in and take over lessons. Um, we have, I have qualified teachers and staff working for me who can do that. That's brilliant. And then you've got these camps that happen, as you say, the STEM stuff that's out of, out of school term time. Uh, some is, yes. Yeah. So we, we originally started with the Chelsea Digital Camps in like half terms and, and Easter holidays, but we then had an opportunity through the Premier League and the Premier League released a fund um, called the Premier League Innovation Fund and it was deemed to be open to clubs to interpret innovation in their own way. And it was linked to the Premier League's flagship program, which is called Premier League Primary Stars, which is a program that every club does. Premier League Primary Stars. Primary stars. So when you see the manager advertised, uh, sorry, interviewed at the end of the game and you see the advertising boards, you'll often see Premier League Primary Stars. You'll see it advertised around the stadium on the digital screens. It is the Premier League's flagship program, which is every primary school in England has access to to a club and they look at English and maths and mentoring and PSHE education and it was kind of a nudge from David Cameron to the Premier League saying clubs you've got to do a bit more and, this was, the, and this was the Premier League's commitment but off the back of that the innovation fund came out and I said why don't we do a STEM program but would build it into the curriculum and that was the birth of uh, Digital Blue. Brilliant and are other clubs in embracing your STEM program and your 
your, as a boilerplate? Yes, we, uh, there's not many teams doing it. Again, so a lot, a lot of the things we did with adult education and business startup, um, not many clubs are doing. So I've always wanted us to kind of keep that pioneering lead and be ahead of, ahead of the field. As a result of us doing Digital Blue, where we teach kids around robotics, stadium design, boot design, coding, programming, we have, it's taken me on the road. I've had to, I've been lucky enough to speak in, initially in Paris, uh, an event called EFDN, which is the European Football Development Network. And after that, I had a lot of clubs saying, that is really cool. How do we do it as well? How do we copy Digital Blue? How can you help us? That's also taken us over to San Francisco to work with the San Francisco 49ers, Dainsmith in New York, Philadelphia, Washington, where we now even got our own Digital Blue platform online in 25 schools in New York. So the STEM train has been moving very, very quickly. But as a result, there's a number of teams who want us to help support. And we recently worked with Feyenoord in Rotterdam, which was a really good experience. And even though these kids didn't speak much English, you take your program of coding and programming of football into a community in Holland, and these kids got it straight away. And they had the same learning and same experiences in London. Because the way you're talking about this is, it's, it sounds like it's a, you've evolved what you've, your, your early experience in Montessori in terms of that personalized learning. And you're bringing it to bear in terms of your, on your innovation focus on STEM. Yeah, I guess so. I never really looked back at it that far, to be honest, until we, you and I spoke. Um, the thing I love about the STEM education is at this moment, our focus is very much around technology and hardware and software. But the great thing is we kind of give kids the general idea of how this stuff works. So when we work with Autodesk, fantastic organization, but we get kids to design through Fusion the Nike boot, and they get to play with the materials, the colors, the shapes, and then finally, when they're happy with their model, they then, they then render the process. And we also use another Autodesk platform called Tinkercad, where we help kids design a stadium. All we do is kind of give the kids, especially with Tinkercad, the basic rules of how to use certain functions and what, you know, what does what, basically. And we just step back and we let their creativity take over. So they set the remit of building a stadium. But how they design that and build that, that's down to them. And you come back 20 minutes later, they've got floodlights, they've got Chelsea in the stands. <laughs> They've got the general idea, but their creativity and curiosity around what this could do, we just let them go. So I guess a link to Montessori is there, but that's the beauty. These kids don't know they're interested in STEM. They don't know they have the skills until we show them and we let them run with it. Mm -hmm. oh, it's inspiring. I, I recently um, sat on a, a, a working group with um, Laureus in a thing called Purpose and Sport, looking at um, with a, on a mission to develop a platform to rally society around the collective um, benefit sport can have in, in um, helping children thrive in communities across the US. Their focus was on bringing sports together to galvanize them around that central purpose. You've talked about how you're, in, you're working with the Premier League. Um, beyond the Premier League, there are other divisions or other leagues, and then there's other sports. Where do you think this is going to go in terms of um, a cross-sport um, initiative because you're obviously uh, your background in cricket you've talked about basketball you've already mentioned you're working with the 49ers is there um, an opportunity to bring together other sporting organizations leagues to really try and drive an initiative like this at a deeper level 100 percent. i always kind of refer to it as when i think of sports i don't care if you kick it hit it with a stick throw it through a hoop it all has the same impact that it gets people engaged and it has this emotional feeling this emotive drive behind it once you have that i don't think it really matters what the sport is to get people interested i mean obviously some sports have more of a pull you know 
if stallball, which is a local Sussex sport, they're not going to probably get much traction apart from the local area or cricket, even in this country, doesn't have the same pull as football does, even though it's a huge sport in this country. A good example is on the 25th of May this month, we are taking part in a thing called Inner Skate, which is a festival of skateboarding in East London. Nothing to do with Chelsea, nothing to do with football, but through my relationship as, as part of the Beyond Sport STEM Alliance, I became very good friends with a guy called Jeff Brody, who works for the Levinson Centre as part of the Smithsonian uh, Museum in DC. And they're a great organisation. Highly intelligent, very creative, really driving innovation through education and their Spark Lab. Jeff's also got a real connection with skateboarding. So he said, look, I've seen the work you've done around STEM education in soccer. Would you be interested in helping us with our event in London we're having next year? And I was, I say yes to most things. I'll work the rest out afterwards because it sounded like a great opportunity. I mean, for anyone that's seen Night at the Museum, that's how I sell it. Smithsonian, <laughs> fantastic <laughs> organization. But I've been to the Smithsonian twice. I've had private tours of it through Jeff. I'm, I'm really grateful for that relationship. But at the end of this month, we'll be working at a huge festival around skateboarding and borders and music and the culture of skateboarding. Where will that be? in the Here East building at the Olympic Park in East London uh, at the end of the month. But people are going to question, why is Chelsea Football Club and West Ham there? Because they're working with us as a local team. Why are they here helping us boarders? It doesn't make sense. All we're doing is taking one of our programs, which is called Robot Football, how we help kids program in block coding with a Sphero ball and our own design football pitch, and we're converting it into a skate park. So we're going to teach the kids the same skills we teach the football-interested kids around STEM education, but through skateboarding. And they're going to code this Sphero ball to go onto half pipes and quarter pipes and do jumps and tricks. So cool. Thank you. What, what age are the kids? This will be any kid that goes, goes through this. This will be adults. I mean, we've yeah, done so things. Yeah, you could have a 21-year-old rocking up with oh, a yeah. board. They, yeah. all, they all love it. The festival's open to everyone. It'll be open to kids, adults, you know, the granddad boarders in their 40s and their 50s from the old school who want to come along and take part and do tricks. But... The beautiful thing is we're going to bring STEM education, football and skateboarding together and fuse it into a program that's going to show kids who've never probably done coding that actually it's quite a fun way to program and code but in a skateboarding lens. So bringing two very random sports together, skateboarding and, and football, we're going to have a hopefully very influential day. There seems to be an innate curiosity in yourself in terms of the, the way you've developed the role that you've been playing so from Brighton to Chelsea and what you're doing now with STEM. Is it something that you consciously cultivate, your curiosity, or is it just something that's innate in you? I think a bit of both. I think I, I'm really interested and curious in the subject of curiosity. One, as a, as a father of three boys, and the questions I get asked on a daily basis from especially my five-year-old, you know, do pigeons get cold? You know, where does the moon go? And all these kind of questions they constantly ask you, which I can't answer most of them. Damn, I but, was hoping you could answer that pigeon one. I'd be, I, was, I think it's to do with my list. feathers fluffing up, putting their feet underneath. I did some research to make sure I could give them something. But it is constant. It's relentless questions. Rather than getting cross, I mean, sometimes they're inappropriate times, but I just stand back and admire that this is all new to him still at five. He's still learning every single day, and I admire that with all the children, all, all three of my boys. Um, and I think I kind of force myself to be curious in certain aspects. I mean, for us to get here where we are with technology and innovation, entrepreneurship, is very unique compared to other football clubs. Not many clubs do this, but I think with my, my interests and passion around business, technology, tech startups, I just feel like I spend more time outside of football in that headspace reading articles from Inc.com and Fast Company and reading Wired or Forbes. You know, I, I involve myself, and sometimes an article may seem like it has no relevance whatsoever to the world I'm in in terms of using sport to empower people's lives. 
But in a way, I turn that article and sort of think, well, how could it connect and of interest? And I find a way to find a link. And then all of a sudden, I'm reading about something which is completely different to what I thought it was going to be. And I start to see opportunities there. And I mean, this morning, I spent 15 minutes reading an article about this guy who has just hacked what they thought would be a 35-year cryptic challenge uh, on programming. This guy, they put a capsule in back in 1999 with loads of different programming challenges and this guy's come across it and what they thought was going to take 35 years, this guy from Belgium who taught himself code has converted it from one code language to another and actually spent the last three years and has cracked it before a team of professionals taking three years and it was all about squaring numbers so that, but the point where you have to do 80 trillion uh, equations and this guy's worked it out and it's got nothing to do with my day job at all but I'm looking at this thinking what I'm admired by his kind of determination, his application here and, and the creativity and how he's worked out ways to do it and those kind of stories to me are interesting and in that I can then connect back to what we do and bring that to life. And if I start mentioning that in a team meeting, there's a reason why people call me the geek because most people in this industry are football people. So they don't probably read the kind of tech stuff that I read, but I feel it kind of gives us an edge and I want to be curious and I want to learn more about other sectors because the world's a lot bigger than football. It's exactly why curiosity is important. It's not asking why you're necessarily following something that might have no relevance whatsoever to what you're doing. But by following that path, having that inquiring mind, you never know where that conversation you have might lead to someone else saying, oh, I know that person, you should meet them, and then who knows where that goes. It's going back to this whole thing of serendipity and happy accidents. It's through just having that in your brain. And, and who's to say that, that you know, you're encountering that article? If, you know, <laughs> what led you to even see that and not skip past it on the page when you, whatever you were reading or when you were surfing? Yeah, all these things, I think it's a sort of a, a capacity we have in, all, in a, all of us to fuel our lives with connections that lead us somewhere that will be a benefit to us or to the community in which we live. And I think it's something we have to encourage in all children, that same sort of cu curiosity. So is, is that something that you're, you're seeing resulting from these programs that you're doing with the kids, that they're becoming more curious, creative, and more inquiring? Yeah, definitely. I think for many of the children, and we're looking at kids in kind of years four or five of primary school, this is their first kind of access to STEM education. It's not because schools don't want to do it, it's because schools, I'm sure we'll talk about, are, are limited with time, resources, exams, offset, etc. And the, the, and the trained staff to do this. So when Chelsea Football Club comes in and says we're going to start to deliver a STEM education program which is going to explore stadium design and boot design and coding and programming, the schools are very grateful for that opportunity. It's nice to then go back to a school and see kids have taken this on and actually from from us just showcasing that this world exists and it's interesting and if you put it through a sports lens, STEM becomes very exciting. They're still doing it and I think to one project we ran here with VEX Robotics, we had a thing called Girl Powered. It was 90 to 110 girls here learning about robotics and building robots and playing uh, robotic challenges. None of these girls had ever done that before. Um, 14 girls from a Surrey school became our winners of that event and then represented us at the national competition here in the UK with the opportunity to go to the US in the World Series. They didn't make it through, unfortunately. But as a result of those girls taking a brand new subject, doing really well in terms of confidence, these girls were varying between sort of year six, year seven, year eight. They've then gone back to their school and as a result, over 200 girls have signed up to a robotics club because of these girls leading the way and flying the flag. It's inspired the rest of their group and 
it's stories like that and programs like that you feel Must like be you're very contributing. Yeah, you know, we're, we're not experts in STEM by all, any stretch of imaginations, but we recognize its importance in today's world. We realize sport is a great way to make it interesting and accessible. And we just try to bring that to life and help teachers who haven't got the time to do that and to see kids who now go on. And also we have kids who are our code ambassadors who represent us and help their kids in their school drive change and have come back and helped us with events here with adults from aviation industries, learning about coding. And we bring a bunch of 10-year-olds in. It's great. On a personal level, it must be gratifying, but it also must be very rewarding for the club and its sponsors to see the impact that the club is having beyond just the success on the field in terms of the impact it's having on communities and children and their opportunity and the pathways it's opening up, opportunity for kids that would never have otherwise through traditional curriculum maybe have taken that path. My sense is that not a lot of people are aware of these programmes and the impact that the initiatives of innovation and education teams like yourself and your own team are having in the general population. It's not something you're reading about or hearing about. No, it's not. And it's put down to ourselves. And, and I always refer to it as a great sort of hidden gem in sports, and not just us, other foundations and community programs nationally and internationally. They've moved, they've developed over the years from 25 years ago as a bag of balls, ex-professional football player, going to local schools and, and going out and delivering football sessions to kind of just keep, build a connection. Hugely important and where this all started. And and no disrespect to where it started. However, they've they've now developed and evolved into quite complex organisations that tackle real societal issues. And the work that we do from innovation and STEM education mm -hmm. through to mental health, through to homelessness or pensioner loneliness. Addiction. All sorts. Mm -hmm. you know, sport has an amazing ability to bring people in and bring people in who've had histories and experience of this and share. and But use sport, again, as that kind of positive way to bring people together. It, it's so complex what football clubs do and other sports teams, but we just don't tell people enough about it. And mm -hmm. the reality is we you know, we could have the cure for illness and all kinds of stuff, but if Chelsea end up signing Ronaldo tomorrow, naturally for the business, that becomes headline news. Mm -hmm. and, our, and our news drops down the feed, and that's just the reality. But we make sure that we do advertise and tell people during periods when we can and, and support the fantastic work on the pitch that the players are doing and, and represent the club in the local area. But to make sure that we are one of the best and you know, it's one of our values here at Chelsea to be brave and, and to proud to be Chelsea. And we want to make sure that we're the best on the field and best off the field. And it's something we commit to, but we just people don't know. And if I had a pound for every time someone said, I had no idea you did that, I wouldn't need to work anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just it's frustrating, but then it's also a challenge to keep doing it to try and tell more people. Where can people find out about the initiatives and the programmes and the opportunities that you're creating for the community if they wanted to get involved? Or learn more. I think the best place probably to start is, is the club website. So you know, chelseafc.com forward slash foundation. That's mm -hmm. the link directly to us. Um, but if you follow, you know, the Twitter feeds, um, CFC Foundation, and um, Facebook pages through Chelsea, and all our information is is shared through social through mm -hmm. the through the club channels. But you know, through the website is the best way to reach out because there's various departments here. There's obviously my education innovation. We have international programs. We have community programs. We have disability programs, health programs. You know, there's different people with different skill sets and expertise in all these areas that work for the foundation. So there's various routes depending on people's interests. You can reach out to us. How does creativity manifest itself in your work? I think if you look at my role in the simplest form, is to use the brand of Chelsea to make a difference via educational programs. You could say that's it, full stop. Mm -hmm. How I go about that, it's down to, to me, it's down to my team, it's down to the vision that we want to have for this club. So creativity is huge. We are 
constantly creating all day long from programs, ideas, marketing, advertising, everything. We need to, it's very entrepreneurial, this role. And one bit of advice I got from my old boss when I was back at the Brighton days was treat this as if you're kind of self-employed, if you're a plumber or an electrician. You know, when this job ends, make sure you've got the next one lined up because we get funded by government grants and they have a start and end date. So we're having to be creative during programs that we can think about, well, where does the next pot of money come from? And I think that helps us in our own entrepreneurial journey as well as teaching that. But, you know, building a digital camps program or a digital blue and teaching kids how to design a stadium, I had no idea I was going to do this. But just because I was aware of software, I was aware of of interest and the way the world's moving. We brought this together, we brought people together, we explored ideas and here we are with a fantastic program. We did we did an exercise a few months ago where our PR guy said, who would you like us to reach out to non-football? Because you know, Chelsea can get lost in Sky Sports News or BBC, yeah. but if Chelsea uh, teaches coding and innovation mm. is in The Verge or it's in TechCrunch, it stands out. So it's kind of, I'm very interested about how can we get our well, work. Well, I, I think that's why the connection to the agencies should be aware of what you're doing because every agency wants to do interesting innovative purposeful campaigns for their clients that often need some form of uh, activation or engagement with local communities and you're building a platform and pathways to allow these types of brands whether they're sponsors of chelsea or not to be able to then create a re mm -hmm. real difference i mean csr you know, corporate social responsibility mm -hmm. is at the heart of what we do so we do obviously have a, a a number of high-level partners here, but we are open to explore, you know, innovative programs with people who are outside club sponsorship. But uh, yeah, ultimately, we you know we help brands activate in the community. But for me, it's 360. It's a brand being positively seen as doing the right thing. Then there's the participants who get the benefit, but also we leverage the staff. So the staff aren't just coming to do a day for the sake of it. They're doing something for their own development, and we make sure that's part of the experience. So everyone's winning in this. Well, the other thing is I'm going to leave this in because any of my friends that are listening to this from my old agency days, or Gordon, if you're listening from the drum, then you need to get in touch with Matt because I think there's real opportunity, or even Nicola Yershin from um, Ex Ogilvy, who I interviewed as well. Um, she talked about how they used to send people down into the community in Brixton to do advertising, free advertising days to help people um, build their websites, help them with their SEO. But if you could bring e even in agency people to do pro bono time working with your teams or some of the digital teams that are inside agencies helping these kids learn to code, build things, do hackathons, there's all these people out there wanting to do more with their time and more with their lives, and you're doing some amazing stuff in the communities. And there's an opportunity to build a stronger network. So shout out to all the agency people. Get in touch with Matt and uh, get your hands dirty. One program we haven't really mentioned is our adult piece. And when we moved away from, not moved away, but we evolved from employability skills, helping people get ready to get a job, we went down about four years ago the path of entrepreneurship. And we have our own incubator here at Stamford Bridge, the Chelsea incubator, where we help unemployed people start their own business. As a result of that, we were doing a two-week incubator, giving them a qualification in enterprise and entrepreneurship, and then they're walking out the door. We kind of pat them on the back and wished them well. We realized we needed something to connect them and bring them back together so they could continue to learn. Um, and on the train back to Brighton, as we say on the back of a fag packet, we come up with this idea called Edge of the Box Club, which would be a monthly gathering of people on our programs, people who care about the startup scene, come together and just share. As a result now, we are three and a half years into that, never missed a month, and we went from about 30 people a month to getting around about 180 to 225 every single month come wow. here to Stanford Bridge. We've been fortunate enough to have Microsoft, Google, um, Salesforce support this, and this is all off the back of the foundation work and my colleague Carl Southwell who runs this. 
this his hard work has made us one of the startup clubs of London. So if you're unemployed in London now and you want to start a business as an adult, you are referred to come to Stamford Bridge to be part of the Edge of the Box Club, to meet people on our courses, graduates of our courses, companies that care about the startup scene. There's live trading, there's one-minute pitching. It's an amazing experience for four hours. Thank you. We're the only club in the world that does that. Um, other clubs have incubators, but through the club side for athletes and, and you know VC funds, this is about the startup community of London and people who are just ordinary people who want to start a business, whether it be restoring train carriages or shoe company or a health company. You know, they, they start these these companies from scratch here. And what you said about that network would be amazing. I know that you're involved in with New York and I think you've got a presence and a relationship with Harlem City FC. FC Harlem. FC yeah. Harlem. Yeah. Is this something that you could potentially take to New York as well? 100%. I mean, it's taken us years to really grow a good network of companies who care about the startup scene here, but it's not going to be an easy thing, but we could go to New York. We could work with unemployed adults, local community colleges. FC Harlem is built around inner-city youth soccer, and it is teenagers, really, but I think there's probably interest there, their parents, their fa the older generation, to, who aren't actively doing something, to come together as a place to learn entrepreneurship skills, learn about business, sharing of ideas, that actually we could translate it from one urban city to another. Mm. It's something we are looking at currently with um, a couple of teams in Holland as well, going back to Holland and, and doing this for a Dutch community. I think we've got we've been given these platforms recently to talk about our work a lot more, and I think hopefully it's testament to the great work we are doing that more people want to know and opportunities like this on a podcast are, are gratefully and well-received. But we get a chance to tell people, and the more people hear about it, the more people say, well, can we get involved? How can you bring that to our city? So, yeah, our business work, our STEM work, we're definitely pioring in, in those areas, and we'd love to share it further. At the heart of it, again, we're just bringing sport into play by saying sports, the football team. And the amazing thing is, of all our adults we work with, the average age is 39. Three and a half thousand we've worked with, probably 50, 55% of female, and probably less than 10% of those sport Chelsea. They don't care about football, and we don't care if they don't like football. It's just about bringing them somewhere different, where they can cultivate the club, the success, the the way it feels to be part of this big team here at Chelsea and meet people who have jobs here and who can help influence their decisions and give them a platform to be open about an idea, explore the idea and hopefully take it through to execution. Football just happens to be this fantastic place to bring people together and convene them. Didn't have to be a football fan. and No businesses around football, but we've met some remarkable people, a few interesting ones along the way, but it's great. It's an experience that we'll never forget because this is proper grassroots, local unemployed, on the streets, coming in with an idea and we, we take them from start. Okay. There's a quote that it's not circumstances that define you, it's your response. What response to a set of circumstances or circumstance has been pivotal in your life? I think, we touched upon earlier, I think that, so I think back to the, the cricket at Oxford, you know, great opportunity. I don't regret Oxford, you know, Oxford Brooks had a fantastic time living there, definitely maximised my time there. But that was a great opportunity to play elite sport and be part of something that I kind of just probably wasn't mature enough or wasn't ready for at that time in my life. Um, I think that what drives me now in terms of making sure I make the most of my situation and keep pushing myself. And to quote sort of one of my favourite Steve Jobs quotes is, only when you look back at the dots do they make sense, you can't connect them moving forward. And I believe that 100% because my path has been slightly random and I've followed things that I never knew how they would make sense. But I look back now. It all it was all meant to be, and I truly believe that the path I'm on now and the and the random thoughts and the random careers are part of the process. It's difficult, but just accept it, learn from it, and move on. Great. Pete. Who have you met that's most surprised you? Two thousand December two thousand and seventeen. 
I was at Beyond Innovation event at NYU in New York City. And um, through my mate Jesse at the 49ers, he brought in Kelvin Beecham Jr., uh, offensive tackle for the New York Jets. I've met many athletes in my time, and they're fine. They're good at what they do, and that's their, their zone. But one thing about Kelvin, which sort of struck me and, and made us connect afterwards, was his passion for education, especially STEM education. Um, and I've not come across many athletes, especially in the modern day times, who talk so passionately about giving back, teaching kids critical skills, using STEM education uh, from drones through to his, his humble beginnings with you know cattle farming and his dad is working on cars. These stories are really important and he learned the value of education. And even as a as an athlete earning you know multi-million dollar contracts, he is hugely active and hugely visible on social media about how he wants to teach the next generation and help them. So it's nice to see athletes out there doing that. Okay. Um, who's made you reevaluate yourself? My wife, constantly. I love her to pieces. She's highly intelligent. She has the real job in the house as a teacher. My job is just passion and, uh, and it's fun. But when I go off on my wacky kind of walks and talks about what we could achieve in the world and together or business, um, she's the one that is good at bringing me back down to earth, which right. can be annoying, but I think you need that. So she's my rock. How do you keep up with technology? You know, if you go to any of my news channels, Apple News, Twitter feeds, social, it's full of it. So I just, I'm surrounded by it constantly. All right. The impossible question. What would your advice be to someone just about to graduate, going to study, have a, has a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but has been told, ah, forget it, that's impossible? You can do it and surround yourself with good people that can build your confidence and build your dreams and make sure you're hearing the right things. I think, you know, it's your, if it's your goal, your vision, it's important to you and don't expect everyone to love it and appreciate it as much as you do. It's your vision, it's your goal. Once you get over that and realize that people will support it but never love it as much as you do, it's down to you. Then I think you get past people worrying what people think. You just go for it and you realize it's your vision. So go for it, surround yourself with positivity and, and keep going because like I said, I didn't do well at GCSEs or, or take my degree very seriously, but here I sit as the head of education for arguably the world's biggest CSR projects in football. So anything can happen. Fantastic. Love it. Tell what book would you want us to offer and the listeners that submit the best comments in the comment section? This is me getting a bit geeky now, but getting things done by David Allen. I pride myself um, on my productivity. It's something I developed about 10, 12 years ago and realized I had to because the constant noise we live in now and constant thoughts we have and getting things done is a methodology by david allen david, right. uh, gtd he studied business for 30 years and realized people are disorganized and they need ways to manage workload and, and, and simply it's about how we capture and collect all these thoughts in our mind constantly we get every single day and we basically organize it and we decide what to do with that information to make your life easier um and I've, I won't ruin the, the surprise of, of getting things done, the, the process, but there's one tip in there which I live by, which is the two-minute rule. If something takes two minutes or less, get it done there and now because the time you write it down or stick it on a Post-it note, you've wasted that opportunity. It could have been done there and then. And he's got a lovely quote, which is the, the, the mind is for coming up with ideas, not for holding them. Hmm. It's all about having <laughs> a process and a, and a trusted system in which you put things to do, thoughts, actions, projects, tasks, and you know it's there and you trust it. And I can go to bed with a clear mind every night because I trust the system I use and my, all my techie bits and pieces because that's where it goes. I don't go to bed thinking that I must remember this because it doesn't happen like that. We forget things. You think you remember it and it'll be gone within 30 seconds. Write it down, capture it somewhere. So yeah, GTD is a, is a good methodology to get behind. Perfect. Who should we interview next? This is an interesting one. So 
I have got a friend actually who we work with for many years. Um, he works here in London, but I met this guy called Phil, Phil Nutley. He's head of uh, human design at um, CCD, which is a design company, ergonomics design company over in Shoreditch. And Phil and I connected many years ago whilst working at Brighton Hove Albion. So he was instrumental in terms of some of the design aspects of the stadium, not so much the structural design, but how can we bring the, the stadium to life through learning and education? And I was, um, basically, Phil and I, we, we share a passion for education and creativity and how to get the best out of people. Um, Phil's been working with design tools and methods across tech and, and a range of social and commercial projects. projects. Um, and we're both interested in how to use the design to solve a range of current issues. And, and humanistic design is a big part of that, from designing the, the world's first female-orientated petrol station over in Scandinavia, through to working wow. in Rio uh, and making it accessible and the football in the World Cup in Brazil, um, through to working with Steve Jobs in the early days in tech. He's been involved in some really cool stuff. And we actually had an event here a couple of months ago where we collided, uh, sorry, parallels of our sport and STEM program, our coding program with the aviation business. Mm -hmm. We brought about 15 different airports from Europe into Stamford Bridge. And we spent the day exploring how the fan engagement process of a football club similar with the passenger experience and what could they learn from each other. And we brought football and aviation together and we brought STEM and our innovation work out and they learned so much about how we engage fans and customers that they could take back to Paris, Istanbul, uh, Dublin, Gatwick. And it was amazing, but Phil and I together um, sort of co-created that and it was a really good project that just highlighted football's got more to offer than just the wow, bag of wind. Fantastic. And we had airports from all over Europe going back saying how amazing that was to think differently. So... Phil stretches my brain when we get together. I always have a headache, but he's a smart guy working in VR and 5G and yeah, definitely worth conversation. Oh, definitely. I'd love to. Well, if you can make the connection. I'll, I'll already text him this morning. Yeah. I'll just finish off and thank you very much for your for the time, for the, again, the great location. And acknowledge you for what I think is an incredible inquiring mind uh, with a, a willingness to continually learn an enthusiasm to embrace opportunity wherever it comes from, a passion to teach and to change the lives and opportunities for disadvantaged, what I thought was just children, but adults as well. And I applaud you for the innovation, the creativity and the energy you have. And I think it's a fantastic. And the more I can share what you're doing with my network with the impossible network network the better and i think it's fantastic and i hopefully look forward to connecting next time you're across in new york and we can um, make these connections go somewhere yeah thank you mark it's it's nice to be able to have a platform to share this and hopefully the listeners are, have heard something they weren't aware of before we'd love to i'm sure know more but it's it, no thank you for your words are very kind it's something that i'm just truly passionate about and like I said, I'm not sure what the roadmap has for me in the future, but it's to keep doing more work that brings people together and, and provides positive outcomes. So it's, it's a passion to do. You know, Being a Chelsea fan always helps, but it's something I'm very proud and, and love to do every single day. Yeah, well, I'm a Man United fan, long-suffering. <laughs> I've gone through the good years and we're in the not-so-good years now, so I just hopefully anyone that's listening and that's a Man United yeah. an educator will maybe take this, embrace what you're doing and push it forward at the, at the great club up north. Oh, there's some good people up at the Man United Foundation. Um, there's some good people all across the country. So it's it's nice to speak on behalf of not only Chelsea, but I think as footballers, the industry, and in that we all have this commitment to try and empower people and change lives in all different ways. But ultimately, it's trying to make a difference through our football clubs. I was, I was over in Brussels last week speaking at the International Football Business Institute um, with postgrads who want to work as football executives. And I spent time with the the head of the Scottish Premier League Trust, uh, Nicky, and also 
a fantastic organisation in Scotland, but not the biggest team by all means. Uh, Montrose FC. Oh yeah, very no, small, very yeah. small team. Just up, up the road from where I was born in Arbroath. Right. Well, it's probably got one of. They are batting well. Up, I'm going to give a shout out to Peter here. They are batting well above where they should be, and they got programs bigger than some of the big European giants. I mean, they're doing some amazing work in Montrose. Considering it was a team many years ago, was getting 400 pounds to this tiny little stadium and a 12,000 uh, 12,000 population of the of the town. But they engage with on on average 25 percent of that community every single week, which is Far greater percentage than any other clubs in the country. Oh wow! Well, next time, I'm, well, I was up in Arbroath last week visiting my mother. So next time I'm back home in August, I'll maybe um, Peter to make a wee introduction. Yeah, he's, he's, to, to know the size of the club and the brand, what they are doing is sort of thing you'd expect to Chelsea. And when I, I had to follow him after he did his ninety minutes, it was my ninety minutes, and I was extremely humbled because a lot of the stuff I was going to speak to about Chelsea, he'd already mentioned mm -hmm. in this tiny little club and what well, the Scottish League One now. Yeah. Um, the club are on a, on a rise. They're doing well. They could have a chance at the championship, which is amazing, but their community will work and their commitment is is second to none. So well worth a, a, a listen to if you speak to him just from a different lens because of the size of the club compared to us. Yeah. Well, great. Well, thank you very much again, Matt. Um, much appreciated and look forward to following up in New York. Yeah, definitely. We do a lot of work there and New York uh, is a real area focus for us. So hopefully we'll see you on the other side. Excellent. Thank Thanks you, Mark. again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, folks, that's it for this week. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcast player you listen to subscribe and rate. And if you like the show, please give us a five-star rating as it helps more people discover us. If you want to learn more or have someone you'd like us to interview, just visit us at theimpossiblenetwork.com or DM us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. For now, be curious, be creative, and be open to serendipity. See you next time.